Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. As always, this is Dustin Reese, and joined once again by Cole Little. Cole, how was your weekend? It was good, man. Lots of basketball. How about yours? Pretty much the same thing, and uh, that's obviously what we're going to start today's show off with, and we're going to talk about March Madness, and we should highlight the word madness because that's pretty much what the opening weekend of tournament games has provided fans as there was seemingly upset after upset from the first day of the tournament all the way through now. Uh, There was the Big Ten who came in as a lot of people regarded them as the top conference in the country and now just four days into the tournament there's only one big team remaining in Michigan and then you had conferences like the Pac-12 who have been considered a, a fairly weak conference in the past. They've put everybody through besides Colorado. A couple number one seeds struggled here and there, and I think that's a good time to start with Illinois and Loyola and start with that game. And we obviously had different results for that game. You picked Illinois from, from the beginning, obviously, and rightfully so considering the season they had. And I was one of the few people that kind of went out on a limb and decided to take Porter Morser and uh, Loyola Ramblers, mainly because we both felt they were underseeded, highly underseeded. We both felt that they've been overlooked a lot during the season. They have one of those defenses that basically can alter the game. And if you look at the losses Illinois had, they were held to under 65 points in all but one of their losses. And once again, that Loyola defense made Illinois work, and they executed the game plan perfectly. Yeah, I mean, that was – Total domination by Loyola. Um, I mean, have to kind of feel bad for Illinois that they got a team that was clearly underseeded because Loyola just controlled that game from the jump, and Illinois was really never much of a threat after Loyola took a a pretty controlling lead. Um, and, yeah, they were clearly the better team. I mean, you know, stats indicated coming into the game that They were one of the best, if not the best, defensive team in the country. Um, But, you know, you just had to wonder if if weakness of schedule factored into that. But clearly their Loyola's defense is for real. Uh, I mean, have to say pretty disappointing performance by Illinois, the star players of Illinois, um, Io DeSumo and Kofi Coburn. you know, Io was never really much of a factor offensively, and you know, Kofi here and there made some big plays, but um, you know, could defensively couldn't really handle Cameron Crutwig, uh, which is, I mean, kind of funny, you know, when you consider that Coburn has all has you know the makeup of a future NBA big man, and you look at Crutwig and he's he's you know not exactly an athletic specimen but he worked Coburn really I mean Kofi was was winded a lot of times it seemed in that game and and Crutwig was just had a high motor the whole time and and Illinois didn't really have an answer for him um but yeah that was just a, a dominant performance by Loyola and um you know, it's it's hard not to question if the Big Ten was truly overrated. I mean, we you know we've seen this several times. I think in recent years, where you have a conference that's um, gets a lot of teams into the tournament, and that you know is is widely regarded as the best conference, and then they underperform come tournament time. I remember in the old Big East, you know, the 16-team the Big East, this would happen from time to time. The ACC's had it happen. Um, but, yeah, we're seeing it happen with the Big Ten, you know, and it, it's – I mean, you could say they underperformed Big Ten teams, but it's hard not to question if, you know, maybe the conference was just overrated or if – you know, the fact that they the Big Ten teams just kind of beat up on each other for, you know, two and a half months leading into Selection Sunday, if if that was a factor. But, you know, Michigan with 
it's arguably its best player sidelined by injury is the only team left standing from the Big Ten. Um, I mean, arguably the best performance by a Big Ten team, the best win uh, by a Big Ten team was, you know, Maryland beating, uh, upsetting UConn with a pretty, pretty dominant performance. But yeah, just not much to write home about so far from the Big Ten. And, you know, we've seen it in several games. I mean, Illinois got dominated. Obviously, Iowa got dominated by Oregon. You know, the big upset losses suffered by Ohio State and Purdue. Um, Rutgers, Michigan State blowing big leads in the second half. You know, it just hasn't been a, a good run for the Big Ten. And uh, Illinois, obviously, a part of that. But, you know, as for Loyola, I mean, they're now set up. You mentioned the Pac-12, obviously, Oregon State getting to the Sweet 16 after their magical run to winning the Pac-12 had to do to get into the big dance, and now they're in the Sweet 16. So I like Loyola's chances in that game. I know you do too. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at a uh, potential – another potential Final Four run um, – by the Ramblers. And, you know, at this point you just have to wonder uh, how much longer Porter Moser is going to be Loyola's coach. I mean, there are several big openings right now, Indiana, Marquette, uh, just have to imagine that those teams will maybe just, you know, send, send Moser's agent a contract and say, you know, put down whatever you want, (laughs) because I mean, clearly this guy is, is one of the best coaches uh, of a mid-major team and, and establishing himself as arguably one of the top coaches, at least defensive coaches in uh, the country. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, I mean, it would just be cool to have another great, you know, underdog story for Loyola, another great uh, run to the Final Four. I think that would be fun and um, a great storyline for this tournament. So we'll see if they can keep it rolling uh, in the Sweet 16. I guess in the way I look at it is I had a I picked Loyola to be in the Elite Eight from the beginning. I have them losing to Houston in the Elite Eight because I think Houston's another one of those teams that, yes, they got a two seed, but I think they were a very overlooked two seed because of the conference they came from also, and I don't think a lot of people are giving them the credit they deserve. But with uh, Loyola getting Oregon State this weekend, Oregon State being the 12th seed, how can you not even consider Loyola the favorite at this point, mainly because of what they've done? And at this point, do you would you even consider them an underdog story at this point? Because they went to the Final Four last time they made the NCAA tournament, I believe. I don't know if they made it between them when they went to the Final Four or not. But eighth seed or not, they were a top 15 team when the season ended. So it's not like they weren't getting some recognition from the NCAA as a whole because they were a top 25 team and their record and their stats and everything indicate indicate that and just the way they played and just the way they took Ayu DeSumo out of the game on Sunday. Or, yeah, on Sunday, that shows you exactly why they're as good as they are and where they, why they were ranked, where they were when the season ended. At this point, I don't even consider them a Cinderella at this point because like we said, they were very underseeded, and we both thought they should be a four or a five seed. And having a four seed make the Elite Eight or the Final Four is becoming a lot more normal every single season. So at this point, I think fans should expect to see Loyola in the Elite Eight and possibly the Final Four again. And if Loyola does make future NCAA tournaments, I don't think anything should be considered a Cinderella run for them anymore just because we've seen the success that Porter Moser has done with this group. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and yeah, I probably should have phrased that as a Cinderella story instead of an underdog story. You know, because anytime you just have, regardless of how good they are, you have like a, a kind of unheralded uh, mid-major in a way, um, make a run to the Final Four. It's is pretty cool storyline. I mean, obviously you have teams like Gonzaga and other schools who are technically in mid-major conferences, but have had so much success that they're not considered mid-major teams. But Loyola, I think, still 
falls in that category. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the the season they've had, um, you know, they they aren't really a traditional Cinderella. I mean, they like we said, they're underseeded. Um, you know, they've been ranked for a while, and I mean, if you do your math there, break down you know, divide 25 by four. I mean, I, you know, it doesn't really make sense. The team that's ranked in the top 25 for so long would be on the eight seed line. Um, but, you know, you also have to wonder if the fact that this was a shortened season and a lot of mid-major teams didn't really have that strong of non-conference slates. Uh, so you have to wonder if that played into it as well. But, yeah, I mean, the selection committee might have been kicking themselves watching that Illinois-Loyola game just because, you know, it's it's obviously not great for the tournament, not great for ratings typically when a, a one seed goes down early. And, I mean, it was just clear that Loyola was had no business being uh, – had no business being an eight seed. Um, and – you know, I mean, also, you have to go back to how they played against Georgia Tech. I mean, heck, Georgia Tech put up more of a fight against Loyola um, than Illinois did. You know, the, uh, Georgia Tech, a fast-paced team coming off an ACC tournament win, championship win. And uh, there were some times in that game where it looked like they had control, but Loyola just played a great second half, played great down the stretch, and came away with a win in that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. You can't really consider this, you know, even though it's in a way it is sort of an underdog story just because of, I mean, small conference, you know, they're not really, um, established yet as a, as a mid-major powerhouse, um, and yeah, getting disrespected in a way by being underseated. But they are pretty substantial favorites right now over Oregon State. They're favored by six and a half or seven over the Beavers. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, literal favorites to get to the Elite Eight. Um, you know, and then if they were to match up against Houston, I assume they would be the underdog in that. But we could get a uh, Loyola Syracuse matchup as well. Can't count Syracuse out. Um, kind of as a side note, kind of wild how many times since Syracuse joined the ACC that Bayheim's taken kind of mediocre teams to the Sweet 16. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it, you make a great point. You can't really consider them a true underdog story if, uh, because of the season they had. Um, and, you know, the, Let's see if they get the respect they finally deserve uh, if they make a second Final Four run. But, again, have to wonder if Porter Moser will be around after that or if, if he will be taking a new job. I don't think it's a matter of if he will be taking a new job. And I hate yeah. to say it, even if they don't make the Final Four, if they beat Oregon State this weekend and just get to that Elite Eight again, I think Porter Porter Moser is as good as gone. There's gonna, there, like you said, there's so many jobs that have just opened up in the last couple of weeks that are very close to where he is right now. Like Marquette, that's hour and twenty minutes north of where he is. It would be obviously a big step up from Loyola. You'd be joining the Big East, which is a prestigious conference in college basketball, and given that he's been the coach in the Chicago area for the past, I think, what, has it been like seven or eight years now, right? Yeah, something like that. So he should be able to pull a lot of that Chicago area talent from Chicago and bring them up to Marquette. Yeah, which, 2011 is when he got hired. Yeah. And you have, like, the Milwaukee kids that have a ton of talent there. So, I mean, if you would go to a market like Marquette, not only are you going to have Milwaukee talent, but you're going to have Chicago area talent that he could bring up there. Indiana is another situation that just opened up, which is roughly about an hour and a half to two hours away from the Chicago area. And that's another big conference, the Big Ten, that Indiana is typically one of those teams that pulls recruits from all over the country. So getting a guy like Moser in there, I think it'll be a big step up and probably a situation where obviously I'm not going to compare him to Bobby Knight or anything like that, but it could probably give Indiana a chance to have some of their 
better recruiting classes since like the Bobby Knight and Mike Davis days. And Boston College is open in the ACC if you wanted to entertain that idea in the ACC. And there's probably going to be a couple more jobs that open up across the Big 12, the Pac-12, and pretty much across the country where, like you said, I don't think anyone's going to just give him an empty check and say, right, you're a mount down here. But he's going to be a guy that's going to be going from making roughly – 700,000 to a million dollars to a coach that's probably going to be making three to four million dollars easy next year based on where he goes and it might take him one or two years depending on the program but wherever he goes after Loyola if he does decide to go somewhere else you can expect a lot of success where he goes and a great defensive team no matter where he goes yeah for sure and you know it'll be very well deserved um you know, I mean, he's, he's hung around uh, even after, you know, I mean, you, you can imagine that he had some coaching interest um, after their first final run, a couple – final four run a couple years ago. But then they had another pretty successful season last year. And, um, well, I guess they've had – yeah, they've had a couple seasons past since. That was 2018. So, yeah, they've had a couple more solid seasons and obviously a great season this year. And, yeah, he's paid his dues. You know, it's it's been um, a great run there. And, you know, obviously, you know, he wants to cap it off with a national championship. And, I mean, heck, the way they played so far, um, you can't necessarily count them out for that. Uh, but – you know, finishing up with Illinois, I mean, have to give them props for a great season. Um, so much talent on that team, so much athleticism. And Brad Underwood did a great coaching job. I mean, it's hard to believe that we had that epic battle between Illinois and Ohio State in the uh, Big Ten championship game. And then, like, a week after that, both of those teams were <laughs> eliminated uh, from the tournament season's over. It's just crazy to me, but yeah, they had a great run. Um, and then of course dominated Drexel in the first round of, of the tournament in round of 64. And then just ran into a buzzsaw with that Loyola defense and had no answer for it. But prior to that had a great season, had a great run, had some big wins and, you know, have to imagine that Io DeSumo will be heading to the NBA. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, despite how how great the season one season was for him, there's really no other way to look at it other than, you know, this was a missed opportunity at, at getting back to the final four. You know, a program of once prestigious program in Illinois that hasn't been to the final four in uh sixteen years and, and this was their best opportunity since then to get back there and it'll have to wait. And the last point I'm going to make here before we uh, switch topics here, Loyola is a prime example of that. It's not always the best talent that wins games, but more so the best coaching because Loyola obviously does not have the talent that Illinois has and a talent that a lot of these programs have, but what they do have is, a coach that is all about X's and O's and a coach that knows how to game plan. And the game plan that he drew up is a prime example of a team that comes into a game with a lot less talent than somebody else, but just knows how to play basketball one-on-one. And that was a perfect example of how to play basketball one-on-one. Yeah, exactly. This is a great coaching job and, you know, they're just a tight knit, balanced team I mean in college basketball a lot of times you have these teams that are just work really well together click well together don't have any egos and um, you know don't really rely on on you know street ball or one-on-one ball or, or you know just giving it to one guy and, and seeing what he can do they just spread the ball around and that's just how it goes a lot of times in this tournament. I mean, the teams that aren't, you know, you'll have these teams that aren't exactly loaded with talent or, um, you know, that, that play kind of an old school style of basketball and it just works out well for them. So, you know, we'll see if they can keep it rolling. And, um, I mean, Oregon State's hot. They're red hot. So, 
that's that's going to be a tall task. I mean, I don't even if they are favored by you know six and a half or seven points right now. I mean, it's just you can't exactly slough off the Beavers. So Ramblers versus Beavers that should be a a good matchup. And then on the other side of the hardwood, you have the Chicago Bulls who have kind of struggled since the second half of the season started. They've gone gone two and well actually three and five since the second half of the season started i mean they they lost to the sixers the heat the nuggets the spurs and the jazz so i mean they've lost to five playoff caliber teams but in two of those five two of those five losses they actually held a fourth quarter lead and let it get away so i mean this team could be in a better position than where they are had they been able to hold on to some of those leads. And when you look at the standing, Chicago is at 19 and 23. They're still in second place in the central division. They're still in the playoff hunt as they are the nine spot in the Eastern conference right now. But when you look at the rest of the standing itself, Chicago is only two and a half games from being the fourth seed in the Eastern conference. And as hard as that is to believe, we were talking about this last week where the Bulls have that seven-game stretch where they're facing either teams that are out of the playoff picture or teams with losing records where if they can whip off, rip off like five or six wins in the seven-game stretch, not only are you talking about a potential playoff team here that's going to put themselves in a great playoff position, but you're now looking at the possibility of the Bulls landing in the middle of the Eastern Conference race, and depending on how everything shakes out, they could somehow sneak into that four seed and actually get a home playoff game as a or a home like home court advantage round as opposed to going into the play play in tournament and having to win just the best of three series just to qualify for the big playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is kind of hard to believe, but um, yeah, their chances are pretty good. You know, since we last spoke, I mean, they've they've struggled a bit losing at home. To San Antonio, uh, lost in overtime, a great game um, at Denver, then lost that, or excuse me, then pulled out a double-digit win at Detroit, but then got trounced at home by Utah. You know, obviously Utah is a NBA Finals contender, so it's not a bad loss. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the defense has kind of been slack since they returned from the All-Star break, giving up probably too many points, but, um, yeah, they're still in the thick of things. Zach Levine is still playing really, really well and leading the way for this team. And, you know, I just keep reiterating this, you know, it's, it's just key for this team to win as many games that they should win, um, as possible just to, you know, improve their chances of, of, like you said, potentially, uh, getting a good seed in the postseason. Um, you know, and they did just that by winning comfortably at Detroit. Um, you know, they have Cleveland, they have Cleveland tonight, which is another right. game that they should win, even though Cleveland's only one or two games behind them in the playoffs, but it's still yeah. a game that they should win tonight. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I mean, Charlotte, a team that's right around the Bulls in the standings, it looks like they might have to go the rest of the regular season without the services of star rookie LaMelo Ball, who broke his wrist. So hate that for him and the Hornets, but that makes, uh, you know, the situation a, a little brighter for Chicago, I guess. One less team, uh, to, you know, weaker team to have to compete with now. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would like to see for their sake uh, to them to kind of step up on defense and, and get back to some of the great defense we were seeing um, before the All-Star break. But, you know, as long as they keep performing well against teams they should perform well against, that's the ultimate key. Um, and, you know, this this team is well on its way to making a postseason appearance. And with postseason, we also got to talk about the NBA trade deadline, which is actually scheduled for tomorrow. And unlike – baseball and football and NHL, the NBA trade deadline is more of a deadline-based league. So when it comes to baseball and hockey and football, like the week of the trade deadline is when you have a lot of those moves happen and it can kind of happen anytime during that week as opposed to the NBA where 
if a deal's going to happen, it usually happens the day that it needs to happen. And a lot of them are very last minute as teams are kind of scrambling to figure out what they want to do in terms of trading pieces away, what they want to do in terms of keeping pieces and things like that. Uh, Laurie Markin, or begin, we'll get back to him in a second. Uh, beginning of the year, Thaddeus Young and Otto Porter Jr. appeared to be the two names that Chicago was going to have to part with at some point this year. And now, obviously, Billy Donovan has said Thaddeus Young is completely off the table at this point, especially considering that he's now starting for Chicago. You can kind of see why his name might be off the table. Otto Porter Jr., as much as he's been injured and as much as he's struggled, his name does not appear to be on the trading block at this point either, which is very good for the Chicago Bulls bench because it's a much deeper bench when he's on the bench as opposed to when he's off the bench. But now you see guys like Laurie Markinen, who's all of a sudden had his name pop up in trade talks, and the Bulls have actually been taking calls in terms of what they can get for him. And Chicago picked up his option last year, but they could not reach an extension for him prior to this year. And I know ideally he wants to get an extension with Chicago, but given his injury history that he's had and a lot of the inconsistent shooting performances, the Bulls and Mark have kind of washed away the extension talks for now, but they've never ruled it out that it could happen. But now you have Markinen who's playing probably the best stretch of basketball in his career at the perfect time. But now his name's coming up in trade talks and you still see the bulls in communication with Lonzo ball and the new Orleans Pelicans trying to get like that ideal true point guard that this roster lacks. As we get to that trade deadline tomorrow, do you think the bulls are going to be able to pull something off to get like Alonzo ball or one of those true point guards that they lack? And do you think it would be a wise decision for the bulls to get rid of marketing at this point, especially considering how he's played since he's come back from that shoulder injury? No, I don't think it would be wise for them to move on from him. I think his ceiling is still too high. Um, and you know, he could potentially team up with Levine and they could be a one, two punch for that team for years to come. I mean, he's arguably the X factor for this team and, and has been, and, has been really since he came into the league, uh, you know, when he's on, when he's hot, uh, you know, it's it's hard to handle him, hard to stop him. No, I wouldn't be a big fan of that move, um, but, you know, I know they might be looking to get stronger in the rebounding department or, like you said, um, add another point guard, uh, more of a traditional point guard like Alonzo Ball, who's been dealing with some injury issues lately, but, Nothing serious. So, uh, yeah, he could very well be moved at the deadline. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that they have the pieces to be able to land somebody like Lonzo Ball if they want the the Bulls. That is, but I'm not. So, I'm not sure what they'd be willing to move for him. You know, I I just you know we've heard varying accounts from NBA rumors as far as what the Bulls might be willing to do or who they might be willing to go after at the deadline, then um, I, I'm just going to kind of hold my breath and wait and see, you know, if, if they do want to get stronger at the point guard position. I think it would help their case, help their cause in an attempt to be more competitive in the East, um, having a more traditional, you know, proven point guard. Um, but I just don't know if, if the price will be right and, you know, New Orleans, the Pelicans might be at, might ask for too much to move on from Ball, who's had a solid season so far. Um, but you know, we'll just have to see. Is I, I, I truly don't know what exactly the approach will be. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the deadline comes to pass and this Bulls team is essentially the exact same. I agree there, but I mean, the way I look at it is you watch a lot of these losses during the second half, especially the two losses against San Antonio and Denver where they had two second-half leads of 14 points and 20 points yeah. only to let them get yeah. away. And the one thing that really lacked was the decision-making, especially at the point guard position. Kobe White is in his second year, and he's going through a very rough stretch right now where he's shooting the ball inconsistently and he's not scoring at the clip that he was scoring prior to going to the bench. And 
with that, he's also made a ton of poor decisions, especially in crunch time where it's just been either a poor shot, poor shot selection or just a stupid turnover that ultimately cost the Bulls a chance of getting more points. And then you got Thomas Sadoransky, who's he's playing very well since going into the start of the starting lineup. I'm not going to take that away from him, but he's not really a game changing point guard. He's more of a game manager. He takes care of the ball and he makes good decisions but he's not like one of those point guards that you can count on to change a game if you need to. And that's kind of why I look at Lonzo Ball as a big piece here. And I've been one of the biggest criticizers of Lonzo Ball since he came into the league. And obviously a lot of that has to do with his dad when all that crap happened when he got drafted and his dad just trying to basically saying that Lonzo Ball was the greatest player that's ever played basketball before he even played a game. And Lonzo has also really struggled when it comes to shooting the basketball. His shots very difficult. It's not a redefined shot, and he's always had to work on a shot. But the one thing he does is he takes care of the basketball, he makes good decisions, and he knows how to run an offense. And I look at some of the players on the Bulls' offense, like guys like Kobe White, Patrick Williams, and Zach Levine. I think all of them would benefit from a guy like Lonzo Ball because Ball likes to play at that up pace and up tempo style basketball. And when you get Levine and Patrick Williams out, out in space, and when you can get them off and running, having a guy like Ball that can kind of dictate the tempo would be very huge. And I think you would start to see guys like Kobe White starting to get more open looks. And I think Patrick Williams would start to come into his own. And just the alley oops that Lonzo Ball and Zach Levine would put together would be just an impressive show to watch in Chicago, I think. Yeah, it would. It definitely would. And you know, again, I mean, having a traditional point guard who can really pass the ball um, and run an offense and, you know, has a history of running an, an NBA offense could, uh, yeah, really work wonders for this Bulls team. You know, we'll just have to wait and see if they're willing to make a move or want to make a move to acquire a point guard like Ball. And now we'll switch over to the NHL where the Chicago Blackhawks have seen their seven-point cushion for the fourth spot in the Central Division shrink down to two points as they've not only struggled to win games, losing six of their last eight, but you've had a Columbus team that's also starting to play much better as of late, so they've been able to close the gap on Chicago quite significantly. The Blackhawks picked up a massive win last night against the Florida Panthers, 3-2. to two. Heading into that game, Chicago was actually winless against Florida this year. They were 1-4 against Florida, and they're 1-5 against Tampa Bay. So those two teams right there, they have a 1-9 record against, and when those are two of the teams you're chasing, that's not a good record to have at that point in the season. But with this win, it's I consider this as one of those confidence booster type of wins for the Blackhawks just because – they beat a team that they were winless against this year. They beat a team that has had their number for most of, most of the season. And then after this game with Florida coming up tomorrow, 10 of their next 12 games are against the bottom four teams in their division. So if they can pick up a point against Florida tomorrow, whether it's a tie, whether it's a win or whatever they can do, this next 12-game stretch, they should be able to bank plenty of points where – they should all but have a postseason spot locked up after they get through this 12-game stretch. Yeah, I mean, similar to the Bulls in that respect. Just continue, I mean, in this case, is continue to get points where you can, um, preferably points via a win. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, they've, they've done enough to – they had their little hiccup recently, um, more than a little hiccup, but – but we talked we talked about that and you know, but they've they've gotten back on sort of a a winning track or, you know, the not giving up as many goals and yeah, getting the win the other night over or uh, last night uh over Florida was huge, like you said. You know, continued struggles against the Lightning, lost two in a row against them since we were last on air. But that's just sort of to be expected. I mean, they're defending the Lightning or the defending um, Stanley Cup champions. So it is what it is. But for Chicago to get a big win over Florida, that's that's crucial. And, you know, they're looking – they're sitting pretty in the playoff hunt. So, you know, just continue to 
perform well and not give up, not go through any rough patches where you give up a whole bunch of goals. And uh, for Chicago, I think that'll be enough. So still got a ways to go, but, you know, playoffs will be here before you know it. So um, Chicago just needs to stay on track. And the thing with the Blackhawks is they've shown that they can compete with Tampa Bay and Florida and Carolina for stretches. They just don't have the offensive yeah. firepower that those three teams have, and that's kind of been the biggest issue for Chicago. Like Chicago consistently can score goals, but they're going to score three and maybe four goals here and there. They don't have a team that can go out there and put up five, six, seven goals on a nightly basis like Tampa Bay and Florida and some of these teams have. So in order for Chicago to have, I guess, success against some of these stronger teams, they're going to have to consistently score. And three goals probably isn't going to be enough. They're going to have to probably average four goals a game against these teams. And if Kevin Lankinen and Malkin Subin can play well enough to only allow three goals, they're going to be a tough out and they're going to be capable of beating anybody. But that's the key. Can they keep Florida, Tampa Bay, and Carolina quiet long enough to give themselves a chance to do so? Or are we going to continue to see what we've seen most of the year where teams jump out to a two or three goal lead on Chicago at some point, so then it's just playing catch up from there. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the key. Um, and you know, I, I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know just how much offensive power firepower this team really has, you know, obviously they're very young. Um, and that veteran presence isn't what it usually is this year. But, you know, I mean, they've shown flashes of, of greatness here and there, so against really good teams. And, um, you know, they've still got about a month and a half left of the regular season to get more competitive against playoff caliber teams and have a chance to, you know, make, make some noise in the postseason. And now we'll head to the gridiron for a couple minutes here, and we'll talk about the Chicago Bears who, I mean, outside of the Andy Dalton signing last week, they really haven't done too much in terms of free agency. Obviously, getting rid of Kyle Fuller to clear up cap space was a major blow for this defense, but adding a guy like Desmond Trufant, I mean, he's not obviously at the level that Kyle Fuller's at anymore, but Desmond Trufant at least is a veteran that you can stick in your secondary and pair him with Jalen Johnson. So at least they're kind of getting something back in return at this point. But the Bears right now, it seems like they're just kind of looking to plug holes by finding whoever they can find. I mean, they brought in a former linebacker that used to play with them. I forgot his name now. Um, what the heck is his name? Let me see if I can find it quick. Um. Who was the guy that just signed? Um, uh, Jeremiah Adewachu. No, not him. Hold on. He used to, he was with the Bears for like three years, and then he went to Detroit. Um, dun, 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 Christian Jones. Not? Yeah, Christian Jones. Yeah, that guy, yeah. Christian Jones was basically kind of like the signing that the Bears have done all offseason. Like Christian Jones, when he was with the Bears, he was – primarily a special teams type player who was used in specific defensive packages here and there. And just the consistent play that he had in Chicago earned him a three-year deal in Detroit where he actually started basically on a regular basis and was starting to put up better numbers. And now he's coming back to Chicago where it all started to kind of get put in a similar role that he had the first time he was here, obviously, because you look at Khalil Mack and Roquan Smith and, Danny Trevathan, he's not going to start over any of them. So the Bears are doing a good job of adding depth pieces to this team, but they just really haven't gone out and really secured that one big move to kind of get fans excited. I mean, the Andy Dalton move obviously was a move that had fans talking, but it's not a fan a move to have fans excited. Yeah, true, true. I mean, they haven't made a big splash, and yeah, the true font um, – Fuller situation is kind of addition by subtraction. I mean, losing Fuller's really stinks for that defense. You know, he's still arguably the hardest hitting cornerback in football. And uh, of course, he's now reunited with Vic Fangio in Denver. Um, and I believe I said, 
I pronounced Jeremiah, Jeremiah Tachu's name wrong, so my apologies there. But, yeah, Jeremiah Tachu, a guy who's a, a good pass rusher. I mean, you know, he's a guy who can bolster that pass rushing unit that wasn't exactly as – that Bears defense wasn't exactly as effective in the pass rushing department this past season as, as many thought they would be. Um, so that's pretty good. That's a pretty good signing and bringing back Christian Jones as well. But yeah, you know, not not too much uh, in the, in terms of a big move. Um, actually, as you were talking, I got a notification to my phone that they're signing uh, former Chiefs running back Damian Williams um, to a one year deal. He was. Uh, for listeners who might not know, you know, he, he missed this past season, sat out due to COVID concerns. He was the guy who was really a, a hero for the Chiefs in the Super Bowl win over the 49ers, made several big plays, and uh, was their go-to, their starting running back, their go-to guy in the um, 2019 season. So uh, we'll see if if he'll be able to get back on track and um, form kind of a one-two punch with with uh, David Montgomery this season. So, um, you know, that's that's a pretty good signing because I mean, obviously, obviously, you can you, you figure that Tariq Cohen will be back in the mix as well uh, after signing that new contract last year. So, the Bears will finally have some legitimate depth at running back. It seems um, so. That's that's pretty good. But of course we know that Trubisky won't be back. Um, he's officially a Buffalo bill. Now we'll back up Josh Allen in Buffalo. And um, yeah, it looks like, you know, I, all our talk about him maybe getting one last shot to uh, compete for a, a permanent starting gig in the NFL, whether it was with Chicago or another team in 2021, Looks like that's not coming to fruition, so he's going to be a clipboard quarterback this year, and um, we'll always have to wonder what the Bears could have done if if he had gotten a full season um, with you know with with uh, the offensive coordinator calling the plays, with Bill Lazor calling the plays instead of Nagy calling the plays early in the season. But it officially looks like it's the Andy Dalton era now. Um, you know, there's still some murmurs about a potential Russell Wilson move. Obviously, Brian Pace would not – I mean, you have to imagine if the price was right, he would certainly not turn not down the opportunity to trade for Russell Wilson regardless of whether or not Andy Dalton is there, you know, or Nick Foles for that matter. Um, and, yeah, I mean, needless to say, it doesn't look like they'll be looking to trade for Deshaun Watson anytime soon. That's a – that's a very tough situation. Not not a good looking situation there. Um, you know, have to wonder if what Deshaun Watson's status for the entire twenty twenty one season will end up being. He might not even play at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, for now, you know, it looks like it's definitely the Andy Dalton era, and that looks like that was the big move of the off season for the Bears. Um, and you know, you'll have Nick Foles, they'll have Nick Foles waiting in the wing wings in case Dalton messes up. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, no, no real big splashes for the bears so far this off season. And that is, that is to say that Nick Foles is even around because yeah, they still true. have all the chatter that the bears are actively taking calls on Nick Foles, but with Joe Flacco now signing with Philadelphia, it appears that Foles will be back because I think that was the top target that the Bears had in mind in terms of getting rid of Nick Foles. A lot of people thought he was going to go back to – a lot of people thought he was going to go back to uh, Philadelphia and kind of see if he could mold Jalen Hurts. But with Flacco there, it's – probably less likely that's going to happen. But all that aside, the Bears still are doing their due diligence, and it seems like they still have interest in either adding a quarterback through free agency or the trademark because I'm, there's Russell Wilson still has his name pop up, and now Gardner Minshew is having his name throw. There's a possible 
Chicago Bears option at this point, but they're still focusing on finding a quarterback in the draft. And John DeFilippo was with David Mills in Stanford for his pro day the other day and actually liked him enough to the point where he was actually asking him to perform specific throws and specific play calls that the Bears would use. Uh, he's actually with Bill Lazor today down in Alabama as they're going to watch Mac Jones play. And the thing with Mac Jones is he's the one quarterback on this in this class for the draft that is the biggest wild card to me. He doesn't have the starting experience that some of these other quarterbacks do is he had to sit behind Jalen Hurts and Tua Tagovailoa for two years. But he had the best year out of any of the quarterbacks that are in the draft this year. He had a better year than Trevor Lawrence. He had a better year than Justin Fields. He had a better year than Zach Wilson. So he had a better year than what the top three quarterbacks have had. The problem is Mac Jones is very similar to Mitchell Trubisky in basically that Trubisky never really played much his first two seasons and then had one year of a starting quarterback under his belt and put up fairly good numbers in the ACC that teams traded up, or I shouldn't say teams, but a team traded up because they felt that Trubisky had a lot of potential. Mac Jones is kind of on that similar trajectory, trajectory where he didn't play much his first two years, but he finally got a chance to start this year and put up amazing numbers this year. And right now it looks like they have him going 15th to the New England Patriots, which that would be a heck of a heck of a move. But basically solidified term, but for some chance, Mac Jones is still around when the Bears picked in the first round. And I know everyone says the Bears need to focus on offensive line and rightfully so. But if Mac Jones was to fall to when the Bears pick in that first round, if you're Ryan Pace, that you pull the trigger and go get Mac Jones, or you try to go and get somebody else later in the draft? Yeah, I, I mean, I know how I would feel, and I would not be a fan of that pick for the Bears. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if with, with especially assuming, like you said, that, you know, they don't find a way to move on from Foles and they still have – both Dalton and Foles in place, they have other areas they need to work on. Um, you might as well just go through a season with Andy Dalton, who, I mean, I know he's obviously struggled in recent years, but he's had some solid seasons where he's led the Bengals to the playoffs several times. And, you know, I think you just rock with him for a year and obviously go with Foles if, if necessary. Um, and then look at finding if, you know, the situation doesn't work out too well with Dalton or Foles, look at explore finding a franchise quarterback next offseason. Um, I think there are too many areas. I mean, really, offensive line, like you said, that's the primary area they've got to improve. Um, you know, it's just been a struggle. I mean, in Trubisky's defense, you know, he hasn't exactly had the opportunity to play behind a great offensive line, uh, you know, for, for too much, for too long in his career, his NFL career. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like you said about Mac Jones, you know, it is similar to Mitch Trubisky's situation with North Carolina where, you know, it's like one great year, one, you know, I mean, Mac Jones' season was, I think it's fair to say, more, effective than Trubisky's but you know with all the talent he was around Alabama that helped him be a Heisman finalist and obviously he got to throw to the Heisman winner Devontae Smith the reigning uh, reigning Heisman trophy winner um but yeah I mean you know you do have to wonder how Mac Jones game is going to translate to the NFL especially considering his limited starting experience in college um you know, I mean, never got to start a full, you know, normal traditional season because uh, obviously this past season was was rather unorthodox. But you know, we'll you know if if the Patriots opt to take him to have him compete with Cam Newton um, and maybe wait in the wings as their future starter, then 
more power to him. But, you know, if, if he's still available when the Bears, when it's the Bears' turn to pick, I would hope that Ryan Pace would go in a different direction. Um, you know, I mean, they, they need to uh, – be able to replace Bobby Massey, who's now a, a free agent. You know, the Bears recently declined his option after kind of a shaky season for him, starting offensive tackle. So, yeah, I mean, I think that offensive line has to be the top priority. Um, they could potentially look to bolster the secondary as well. But, um, you know, or I mean, really any area of the defense, you know, I just think that – for now, they might as well just go with Dalton and just look to have him in place as the veteran starting quarterback this season and do what they can to make this team overall more competitive uh, in, in terms of what Ryan Pace and the Bears front office, how they should approach the draft and the rest of the offseason. Exactly. Uh, last topic today will be Major League Baseball. I know we didn't touch on it. It all last week, just because with March Madness starting, we kind of focused on that a lot on the show last week. But spring training is in the final week of spring training as their final spring training game for everybody is Monday afternoon. And then the regular season starts next Thursday with the Cubs taking on the Pirates. And I believe the White Sox take on either the Twins or the Tigers. Let me pull their schedule up here. So the White Sox actually play a game on the 30th. So their their final spring training game is the 30th, and then they start on the road at the Angels on April 1st. So taking going off of that, you have the White Sox who have been playing much better lately. They're now sitting at eight and ten this spring, and at one point they were two and nine and three and nine at one point. So they're playing much better now than what they were early in the season. The Cubs have struggled their last couple of games, but they're still 12, seven and three. They're the only team ahead of them in Cactus League play is the Kansas City Royals. And we're not going to really talk about records too much or stats too much, but I want to talk about the Cubs for just a second here. And you look at a lot of the position battles on that team. Obviously, Austin Romine was signed to be the backup catcher, but at this point it looks like P.J. Higgins is now going to make the opening day roster because Austin Romine is nursing some sort of a knee injury and hasn't seen a game in almost two weeks. You look at the second base battle where it seemed like it was between Nico Horner, Nico Horner Adermo Vargas, and David Bodie. Well, David Bodie's probably going to be on the team no matter what as like a utility infielder. Nico Horner, given the spring that he's had, has pretty much cemented himself as the everyday second baseman. And Eric Sogard, despite being a late arrival to camp, is actually playing very well right now, and he's going to leave manager David Ross with a tough decision if you want to have Sogard come up and be the backup second baseman or do you want to go with Vargas, considering how Vargas has no options left. And if you don't add him to your roster, you're at risk of losing him. Uh, Jacob Marisnik, another one of those guys that was a late arrival to spring training, has put the Cubs on notice as he has three home runs and 15 at-bats this spring and has now I, – I would say he's probably overtaken Cameron Maven as the favorite to get that final outfield spot. But I want to circle back to the pitching rotation for a moment, and we've already seen Kyle Hendricks be named the opening day starter. There's no surprise there. Jake Arrieta has quietly put together a very impressive spring, and – it looks like he's actually in line to be the number two starter in the rotation that would move Davies to the number three. Trevor Williams might have been might be the more most impressive pitcher for the Cubs all camp, and he's really shown that he looks healthy this year, and that slider of his is really starting to go to work like it did a couple of years ago when he won 14 games. But I want to focus on the number five spot in the rotation for a minute here. And all offseason long, we heard the names. Alec Mills and Adbert Alzolai as the two pitchers that were going to battle for that spot. Well, Alzolai has an option left, and given how much he's struggled this spring and we really haven't seen him in the last week or so, it seems to me that he's more so destined for AAA at this point, which is fine. 
Mills has also struggled this spring, and he's really struggled his last two times out with an ERA sitting at a 5.91. And that's really concerning, especially with him only making one more start before the regular season. But one name that I think is going to make David Ross's decision that much more difficult is Shelby Miller, who signed as a minor leaguer this year with a non-roster invitee to spring. Not only has he been impressive this camp, but if I were to go based on spring training performances right now, Shelby Miller would be my pick for that number five spot in the rotation. Yeah, I mean, he's done really well. Um, obviously, uh, used to uh, give the Cubs fits as a Cardinals starter. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's a veteran guy who's hung around. You know, he, he had an all-star season with the Braves in 2015, and – Really, these, these past few years has just been kind of looking to return to form. Um, didn't pitch in the big leagues at all last year. He, he signed a minor league deal with the Brewers, but then opted out due to COVID and didn't play in the big leagues in 2020. But, yeah, he has looked good. And, you know, I, I think it would be worth considering him as being a guy who could round out that rotation. Um, Ross is certainly going to have some options to choose from, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. It, it's like the priority, um, from the off season is especially looking at the Darvish trade was just to get, it just seemed like maybe, um, the front office was looking to get younger in that department, maybe, you know, prioritize a younger starting rotation and they are going to have some, some young guys in the mix, but, uh, some of the older guys are going to be key to, you know, rounding out this rotation and and making it playoff competitive, um, such as Arietta, maybe a Shelby Miller. Um, you know, it, it all starts with Hendricks. I mean, we know for sure now, as if there was any doubt, he will be the opening day starter. And he's going to be the stalwart of that rotation. Um, it's now officially his his time to be the tried and true ace of the Chicago Cubs and lead the way. So, you know, hopefully for his sake, for the Cubs' sake, he'll be fully healthy all season long and, uh, you know, lead the way for this, this pitching staff. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the opening day roster officially looks like for the Cubs. Um, you know, got a lot of puzzle pieces that still haven't necessarily been put in place uh, as, as we get to the finish line here of spring training. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a wild off season for the Cubs. It really has when all things considered, when it looked like it was going to be a rebuilding year and then all of a sudden they make some moves to make them more competitive and add some veteran names to the mix and, you know, a lot of pundits still consider them the team to beat in the NL Central. I mean, I would have to consider, I think you agree with me on this, that the true favorite has to be the Cardinals with all the talent they have. No, no, I will never admit that on this air. Maybe I will admit that I will never admit yeah. that on the air. But, you know, I mean, the Cubs – you know, we'll just have to see. I mean, it, it, you know, we're going to see what they're made of. First full season for Ross. Um, obviously, I mean, it, it arguably didn't get talked about enough in the media, the solid job he did managing the Cubs last year. And we'll see now what he's capable of doing um, in a full 162-game season. And, uh, yeah, it'll just be exciting to get going and start a new uh, kind of a, a weird situation for the Cubs where they're in they're starting sort of a new era um you know with with a new general manager and sort of looking ahead to the future and you know but at the same time while Jed Hoyer's been looking to get younger and prioritize building for the future they still have so many of those key core pieces still in place um and several of them looking to have really good prove it kind of years for future contracts considerations. So um, a lot at stake this season for the Cubs. And unlike seasons in the past, like I've actually watched every single spring training game this year. And I know everyone always says spring trainings don't matter. The stats don't matter. The records don't matter, yada, yada, yada. And that is obviously true to a point, 
But in the Cubs situation, I think spring training actually mattered for them this year. And you can look at the veterans just because of the years that, or the year that Brian Baez and Rizzo had last year, obviously they want to get off to a strong start this year to prove that last year wasn't who they were. So obviously they're going to take spring training serious to try to get everything the way they want it before the regular season starts. And then you have guys like uh, Eric Sogard and Vargas and Jake Marisnik and Mills and Shelby Miller and all these players that are competing for a job. This essentially is their month to audition for the team. So yes, records and things don't matter. But at some point, you have to say that overall spring training performances do matter to a point. And for the Cubs, I think their spring training does matter to a point because there's a lot of players that are in camp right now that fans probably have never heard of before. But now they know exactly who they are just based on the performance that they've had this spring. And that goes a long way for the entire organization because – chances are you're going to have to count on some of these players that have contributed during the regular season during the or during spring training during the regular season when injuries and things pop up. Right. Yeah. I mean, look at a guy like Rafael Ortega and the spring training he's had. I know he talked about it before, but obviously he's essentially an unknown guy and um, has, has made a big splash, uh, made a big splash early in spring training for the Cubs and, you know, made himself known to Cubs fans. So, you know, that's just a, uh, uh, an example of what you're talking about. But, yeah, I mean, you know, spring training is, has been important for the Cubs. I can imagine it's been significant for many teams, more significant than usual when you look at the weirdness of 2020 and the fact that spring training, you know, throughout most of spring training, um, the early part of spring training, you had this, you know, looming in the air, the, the you know, oncoming pandemic and then lo and behold obviously it hits and spring training gets cut short and in the middle of march and um and you know and then the season doesn't get going again until the middle of july um so you know you have to imagine having a full spring training slate has been really key for every team um not just teams like the Cubs are in sort of a a weird transition sort of period, but, you know, any and every team is to get back to normalcy and, um, you know, give these new players a shot at competing and, and obviously no minor league season last year. So that adds another element to it, but uh, yeah, it'll just be great to have a traditional opening day next week. Um, a true opening day, you know, we're in most ballparks, we're going to have fans and um, it would just be great to, to get back to true uh, major league baseball and have a full season. And then right before we sign off, I'm just going to ask you one question quick. And I kind of brought this up as a comparison last week in one of the columns that I did, but the whole Trevor Williams situation. And I know, a lot of fans were not happy with the signing just because you look at his career record and how he's pitched the past couple of years. But keep in mind the team that he played for right. was absolutely pathetic the last three years. And you go back to 2018, he did win 14 games that year and posted an ERA barely above three. So he has shown the potential to be a middle of the rotation start. I kind of look at this Trevor Williams signing a lot like when the Cubs signed Jason Hamill. Like Jason Hamill obviously was a much more proven pitcher than Trevor Williams is, but Jason Hamill was also a below 500 pitcher who was struggling to figure things out until he got to Chicago. And then in three years with the Cubs, he goes 34 and 23 and posts an ERA in the 3.5 range. Both of them have a similar pitching style. They both throw between 91 and 93. They both use their slider a lot. And it's just, and it just kind of reminds me of that signing where, Williams has shown that he has the ability to be a great starting pitcher, and it might just be that change of scenery that helps him kind of break through. And if he ends up doing anything close to what Jason Hamill did during his time in Chicago, that's going to be a steal in the free agency. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And like you said, I mean, he's been playing on such a terrible team, you know, these awful Pirates teams. So, you know, it's it's kind of – 
unfair to judge him judge his numbers too harshly there because you know he had pr- practically no hitting support um, these past few years you know other than Josh Bell and a couple other guys for the Pirates but yeah it'll be cool to see what he's capable of doing uh, with the Cubs you know now he has an actual legitimately competitive uh, batting order to support his cause um, and you know he's still pretty young I mean he's 28. Uh, you know, just came into the league in 2016, just came into the big leagues in 2016. So he's still got some good years ahead of him. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited about this signing too. That really could prove to be the ultimate steal of the off season for the Cubs. That's all the time Cole and I have for you today. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I will be on vacation in Myrtle beach this upcoming week so there will be no podcast next week but we'll pick things up again on wednesday april 7th cole is there anything you want to add before signing off yeah um just wanted to round out our sort of college basketball discussion obviously i'll look forward to watching loads more of college basketball this weekend as well but looking at you know other tournaments uh as far as illinois teams and chicago area teams are concerned uh, on the men's side, um, Illinois and Loyola were the only ones to appear in postseason tournaments. Obviously, you have the NIT and the CBI. Uh, no Illinois or Chicago area teams in that one. The CIT was canceled this year. But on the women's side in the uh, WBI, you had Loyola the the uh, and the Ramblers didn't do so hot in that one, but ended up in the eight eight team field ended up in seventh place won the seventh place game over Abilene Christian won by 19 in that one and looking at the WNIT you had Illinois State and they ended up being the runner-up of the consolation bracket losing to UT Martin to round out their season and they're uh, in the Memphis regional the WNIT so nothing too significant for Illinois State in that tournament. Uh, they lost their opening round game to Tulane and then entered the loser's bracket. But in the big dance, the um, the women's big dance, March Madness, NCAA tournament, uh, you have Northwestern, who as of the time that we're recording this, is still alive. Um they are a seven seed. They beat 10 seeded, 10 seeded Central Florida in the opening round and will take on two seeded Louisville later this afternoon in a second round matchup. You also had Bradley, you know, out of Peoria, out of Peoria, excuse me, out of Peoria and getting in the tournament. And uh, unfortunately for them, they got drubbed pretty good by Texas in the opening round lost to they were 11 seed Bradley was lost to six seed to Texas by 19 so their season is over but yeah we still got Loyola on the men's side and we still got Northwestern on the women's side so we'll have to keep track to see how Northwestern does in that um, I mean for what it's worth their season is likely to come to an end in a matter of hours obviously Louisville's a powerhouse but um, we'll have to see how they do and uh, wish them the best of luck in that one. All right. Sounds good. There'll be a lot of basketball to continue watching this week and into next week. And hopefully Loyola and the rest of the Illinois teams can keep things going, but that's all the time we got for you today. Take all right, man. Have a great vacation. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Yep. See ya.